we come back together, uh, there is one thing I did forget to uh, encourage during the announcements, which is that following the worship service, before we crack open the food and the pumpkins, we'd love to get a photo uh, of us together. Um, and so uh, even if you're not planning to stay uh, for the, uh, the lunch, the, the picnic, um, can you please just wait a couple of moments after worship and uh, Elder Calvert Ben will direct us. Uh, he has, uh, again, an idea, and so we will help him bring it to fruition directly following worship. Um, we are in uh, the book of Romans, and uh, we are doing uh, a fairly uh, timely study through this book, uh, given the fact that some people take several years to go through it. We're in chapter 4, and uh, just uh, a quick uh, Reminder of where we are, the, the, the idea behind this sermon series is to, to reinforce the totality of Paul's argument in the book of Romans, which is that God is creating, through the Messiah Jesus, all of the fulfillment of the covenant promises made to God's people, and so that the Jewish faith is coming to its fruition uh, in the Messiah, and that the blessing to all the nations is coming true, and so that part of what we are seeing in Rome itself is this wonderful reality of God's covenant faithfulness, so that churches are being founded with Jew and Gentile in the same congregation, and that because of the work of the Messiah, there is a new hope for the way in which community and life functions under the lordship of Jesus Christ, regardless of whether one is Jew or Gentile. And Paul is showing through the book of Romans how this functions so that the church in Rome might know the opportunity and the power of being both in line with and part of God's ongoing covenant faithfulness and being a part of this new manifestation but always promised manifestation of what God's people and what God's kingdom would look like. In the midst of that, we have some of the most important doctrines in the Reformation, one of the most important, some of the most important doctrines in our understanding of how God interacts with us as fallen and broken human beings who can never earn salvation. And what we've tried to do is to put those great doctrines back in the flow of Romans. And so uh, I have to continue to hurry on because uh, I spent, uh, as some of you know, 10 days in Wyoming, and the Green Beast, that 1970s Suburban, which I used as an illustration of the Book of Romans disassembled and laying all over the floor, which is great as long as you have some plan to put it back together. Well, we put the engine back in, so my time... Uh, to use that truck as an illustration is, uh, is running out because the truck is being put back together. And hopefully, uh, in some small way, uh, my sermons are doing that a little bit for our overall view of Romans. So let's put the text in front of us. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8 this morning. Hear now God's word. What then shall we say? was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from his works. Blessed is the one whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man who, against whom the Lord will not count his sins. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are greatly comforted and assured and encouraged by you being the beginning, the middle, and the end. That your plan has stretched even before the foundations of the world. And that you are bringing all things to their right and righteous conclusion. We pray that as we look into your word again, we might rest in a God who is faithful and patient, gentle and kind. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick you will not snuff out. So we pray you encourage our faith again this morning in the sureness of your faithfulness. And whatever is said that is not useful for the building up of your people, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. It is uh, not unusual in any culture to have an idealized view of some of the founding fathers, some of the great heroes. Uh, We create uh, certain myths around them. And the myths grow far beyond the actual experiences or accomplishments or sometimes the character of those heroes. Idealizing heroes in their acts of bravery, their strength, perhaps their their vision for the future and seeing it accomplished, and their actions. And we can become somewhat uh, idealized in our conception of those folks, editing out anything that makes them slightly human, and really lifting them up as something to be admired in a way that, uh, well, quite frankly, borders on idolatry. And we know it's idolatrous because if anybody critiques our heroes, we get really, really defensive. And anytime you get overly defensive about your heroes being critiqued, chances are they're holding a slightly inappropriate position in your mind. That doesn't mean you can't advocate for them. It doesn't mean that you don't uh, disagree with someone. But you know what I mean. You know when you feel like your identity and your significance is threatened because somebody that you have upheld as being this great icon maybe wasn't nearly as uh, perfect as you might have thought. This was still, and all, not still, this was also true 2,000 years ago, uh, and it related to uh, the Jewish rabbis and philosophers and theologians in their reflection upon Abraham and his role as God's means to found the covenant people through whom the Messiah would come. Uh, The Jews had written uh, several books in the intertestamental period, the 400 years from uh, the close of the last prophetic book uh, to Jesus' appearance, that taught that it was actually Abraham's actions that justified him. 
that it was his uh, faith, not uh, in our classic understanding of faith alone, but his faithful actions in line with whatever revelation he had received from God, and that in his faithfulness, God became compelled to support and encourage his children and his children's children. Uh, One of the rabbis even said in one of his writings describing the escape from Egypt and through the Red Sea that it was Abraham's faithfulness that compelled God to split the Red Sea on behalf of his children. As Paul opens chapter 4, and as he continues to expound the faithfulness of God to his covenant, he goes to the heart of one of his brothers and sisters' deepest held beliefs at the time, that Abraham had earned it, that he had been the great patriarch because he was without blame. In fact, some of the texts even extend that same blamelessness to his son and to his grandsons. One wonders if they had read the book of Genesis all the way through. But we are all tempted to edit out those things we know. And Paul knows that if Jew and Gentile are going to be able to worship together in mutual respect and understanding that their identity and their security and their place within the community of faith is not based on their genealogy, is not based on their uh, connection to God's covenant law and the history of God's uh, faithfulness to Israel, unless there is that true equality between the brothers and sisters in Rome, there will always be a division in the church based on whose hero was stronger or more faithful, who has achieved more and been a better good steward of God's many blessings. And Paul goes to the heart of one of his brothers and sisters' deepest held beliefs by going after one of their most beloved texts, Genesis 15, verse 6, which they were actually using at that time to teach the exact opposite of what Abraham meant for Paul and what Paul means to teach us about God's faithfulness through Abraham. So this morning we're going to look at the the importance of texts, the importance then of the truth, and lastly the importance of our calling to tell it as God's people. So text, truth, and telling. As I've already started to uh, allude to, Genesis 15, 6 was in their time, uh, in Paul's time, seen by the rabbis in Jerusalem and throughout the diaspora as one more piece of evidence for the dominant view, not the exclusive view, but the dominant view that Abraham's faithfulness is what secured for Israel its place in God's heart. Abraham earned his status of righteousness through as some described, his faithfulness before to all of the law before the law was given at Sinai, that he had acted out of the full covenant faithfulness and had achieved all that the law had required of men and women, that he was, in a real sense, a Messiah. 
Paul wants to help them understand that this is not what this text means. It can't mean that. They had taken it out of context. And we can identify with that pressure. There was Israel having faced years and years of exile, one failed attempt to restore the kingdom after another, desperately trying to understand how they might get God to bless them again. When will the Messiah show? How can we create a situation in which the Messiah will show? And to whatever degree that was works righteousness as we understand it, what it certainly was, was a deep and earnest desire to say, God will return when we are faithful to his law. When we are the people we were supposed to be, God will return and we will be blessed and the nation will be blessed through becoming like us through implementing and embaying and embodying the laws of the first five books of Scripture. It's understandable. A text that for us seems so clear to state justification by faith alone taken in the context of 400 years of difficulty and trial, of failure, of submission before pagan rulers and the threat of pagan gods. The temptation to believe that Abraham was blessed because he embodied covenant faithfulness, not because of his faith in God's promises, shouldn't shock us. The arising of the idea of a rapture is an illustration for our own time. It is a very odd idea for a first, second, for a first or second century Jewish individual that God would in some way swoop into the world uh, and have us all jump on and just as he hit warp speed we would watch the world explode in our rearview mirror having escaped the final judgment. It would have been an odd view for a Jewish person. And the texts themselves don't actually uh, speak to that. And in fact, the way I try and help my brothers and sisters who hold to a rapture position, which is really a uh, a middle 18th century, 19th century construction, is to go to those texts, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, taken in context of first century Jewish understanding and Roman understanding, What that's talking about is not being caught up in the air to go someplace else, but it is the same grammar and language used by Roman governors and Roman emperors to say, you will come out and meet me when I come to your city. And then you will bring me into your city and you will show me all of the wonderful things you've done. The grammar and the context of the first century leaves no room for a notion that this is the story of people leaving the planet any more than Matthew 24, 40 through 41, where one will be taken and one will be left, again, in context in its history, leaves no room for the notion that the people who are taken are the righteous ones. Because for any Jewish person being taken out of the Holy Land, which is where Jesus is standing when he preaches those words, is to be in judgment. The people who are quote-unquote left behind are the ones who are righteous because they get to stay in the promised land. The ones who are removed from it are the ones who are being judged. That's the history. That's the context. That's the grammar. 
But in the midst of the 19th century with the uh, tragedies of tenements and the horrors of industrialization, illness and disease, is it any wonder that taken in English translation 2,000 years separated from Jesus' original words or Paul's understanding that someone would read that and say, my stars, it would be good to leave this place. Can God really restore a London where you don't see the sky because the coal fires are such that it's always gray and always cloudy? That you want to go out to the country, to leave the place you were in. And it's not surprising that our brothers and sisters would, out of context, and without knowledge of the original language, increasingly believe. And their theological uh, theologians affirm, absent of history, this idea. So again, it shouldn't shock us, and I give the uh, lengthy illustration that I just did, to give us all a sense of that patience, that we shouldn't judge our brothers and sisters of the Jewish uh, persuasion in Rome too harshly as they had these ideas about who Abraham was and how they were trying to understand what it meant for them to be zealous for the law of God and to live it out well in order that their loving God might return and in some small way they might be worthy of the redemption always promised. That perhaps their motivations were not uh, evil but that their application was misplaced. And the text is always in danger when it gets divorced from its historical context and its original grammar to become the plaything of my own heart and mind as I wrestle with my needs and I find a single verse here or a thought there that I might shape to comfort me in a way that perhaps was not its original design. A God who served Abraham, not out of love, but out of duty, is a dangerous place to go. A God unable and unwilling to restore his creation and simply planning to abandon it and blow it up is a God who seems somewhat smaller than the task at hand. We must guard against ways of making God rational to us, God sharing our feelings and emotions in the moment of our despair and our brokenness, our needs and our fears. We need to remember where Abraham came from. And here's the truth. He was a part of, quote unquote, a faithful family. Uh, He came from a line uh, uh, out of Jonah's, um, Jonah. Noah's children that was supposed to be the blessed line, but there is uh, evidence that uh, Abraham was not specifically or exclusively a follower of the Lord God, that in that time, knowledge of the Lord was somewhat confused, and uh, it was not a guarantee that Abraham was anything other than uh, a theist or maybe a pantheist. And as he was revealed uh, by the, God reveals his presence to him, The brilliance in what Paul is trying to say in this text is that Abraham started the same place that every pagan does, uncircumcised and outside the covenant, and that God comes to even 
the pagan, even as he came to Abraham, who at that point was uncircumcised, and as he spoke to him, Abraham responded in faith. He had no covenant status. He had no covenant sign. He had the word of God, and he responded and followed and moved from Haran down into Canaan and believed that the promise of God to give him a child and that he would be a blessing to the nations was going to be held true. The truth is that as we come to this section of chapter 4 in God's faithfulness, we have had to deal with chapters 1, 18 uh, through chapter 3, 20 of Romans, which gave a pretty weighty and unflattering portrait of both Jew and Gentile. Believer and unbeliever alike in their ability and willingness to hide from and abandon the truth of God for their own means. We're not coming back from these transgressions. There is no amount of righteousness that could be done. Abraham, for all of his faithfulness, still sinned and Scripture records his lack of faithfulness to Sarah on at least two or three occasions. He was a human who wrestled with how God's faithfulness would come, and yet the faithfulness that he did had, his belief in God and his promises, despite Abraham's anemic attempts to help God's plan along, either by keeping himself safe by putting Sarah in harems or connecting, shall we say, with Hagar, even in Abraham's attempts to help God, It was his faith that God's words would come true, that count him as righteousness. Even his faith took wandering side trails more than once. Because he's like us. Abraham does not escape the indictments of Romans chapter 1, 18 through 320. Or 21 through 26 of chapter 3, none of us escape but the Messiah himself. No hero can bear the weight of being evaluated by a perfect and holy God because our morality and even our best attempts to follow God's righteous word will fail. And it is Abraham's faith in God, not in his ability to follow God, that marks him out as a man who is righteous. He's righteous because he trusts in the right action of God, not his own right action. Verses 4 and 5 in our text. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. Paul wants people to clearly avoid this sort of interaction with God and to reinforce the fact that this is not Abraham's interaction with God. This was not earned. Again, some of the quotes that I uh, referred to earlier with texts that were well known to uh, Jewish folks in the, in the end of uh, the middle of the first century and before that talked about what Abraham had earned and his efforts and what was due him because of his superior life from Yahweh. And Paul is going to the heart of that misconception by saying, no, it isn't grace. It isn't the power of faithfulness. If Abraham had earned this as a worker, then it is his due. But that is not the God we worship. 
but to the one who does not work but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is counted as righteousness. One can imagine that if we were to sit with Abraham, like many people that are idealized, they are probably far more honest about themselves than some of their disciples and proponents. They know themselves to be human. They know their flaws and they are held before them. No doubt Abraham would have screamed quite loudly and denied any sense of his own self-worth and righteousness had he sat down with the rabbis who were accrediting him with things beyond his ability and beyond his calling. The truth is the humility that comes from recognizing as David does in this wonderful psalm that is quoted in chapters, uh, verse chapters 7 and 8. Psalm that I encourage you to reread over the course of the week because he talks about what happens to his very bones when he did not confess to the Lord. He wasted away, but what he knows is that it is a blessing for those who lawless deeds are forgiven Abraham had lawless deeds and they were forgiven because he had faith in the covenant promises, in the truth and veracity of who God was when he spoke to him and led him from one land into another, promising to give that land to his children and the children's children after them. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his iniquity. There is a great amount in several sermons just on how that great truth of confessing one's sins, not hiding them, brings not only freedom in our own minds and hearts, but the blessing of the Lord. He works with repentant and through repentant souls. That's the telling. The telling is not of our own achievements, but of God's achievements in the midst of our fallenness and brokenness. As hard as it would be for Abraham to reread those stories of what he did to Sarah or the tragic train wreck of Hagar, he would want them recorded that we might know the goodness of God in the midst of human failure. And to call us and to spur us on to live in that faith of how God uses even broken and fallen people. And in his own way, we are rightly respectful and learn from and want to be more like Abraham because the way Abraham was most of the time, I can only imagine if I was that faithful. But that's the faithfulness of God. And that's what David is saying in Psalm 32. This is a song sung in worship. Thank God I can confess my sins out loud. Thank God that these things are freeing. Thank God that it is by faith and not by righteousness that I am counted a part of God's covenant people. Go tell it on the mountain. Not just that Jesus Christ is born, but Jesus Christ has freed me from the need to be without sin. 
because it has been given as a gift. The need to earn enough to cross some line of righteousness so that I'm a little bit better than you or you're a little bit better than me. Tell the goodness of a God who forgives, who restores, and then, yes, does call His people to follow Him. Not as a righteous act to earn it, but in faithfulness to one who is faithful to us. Two questions as we wrap up this morning. Who are you telling this good story, this good news? One, that the only hero is Jesus, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit. Who are you telling the story of the great heroes of Scripture, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? The world needs to know, Paul is going to say later in this book, how will they hear if no one tells them and if no one goes? This is a great story, a story of unfathomable faithfulness to faithless people whose mere act of just saying, well, I'm pretty sure God's smarter than I am is the beginning to a life of freedom and joy. And then second of all, how are you telling them the good news? See, it is not just the words, but it is the way those words come across. Truth in love, mercy and service. The great verse from Malachi, Micah, sorry, 6.8. Do we tell the story of justice? in its full answering in Christ, the power of God's mercy and what it means to walk humbly behind a loving and gracious God, to follow Him and to call those around us to join the train. How do we tell them the good news? When we live it out of the life of faithfulness that Abraham really and truly did live. The life we see in Genesis. The brilliance, the power, the humility. Even tempered by his failings. It is a life and a story that does point to the goodness and the faithfulness of God. Abraham should be one we look up to and aspire. Not as a surrogate for the Redeemer but as a broken man who can lead us, other broken people, to follow an unbroken line of God's love and faithfulness to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be merciful to the preaching of your word. We are grateful that you use broken and fallen people, and because we're created in your image and restored, Lord, there is great glory, there is great purpose, there is great dignity as we trust, as we put our faith in your view of us, not our view of ourselves. And may in that vision of what you see in and through us by Christ, we might in some small way reflect that glory, that dignity, that power, that beauty to all those around us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.